This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! That's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thanks so much for joining us. What if your normally feminine and well-adjusted adolescent daughter suddenly announced to you that she is transgender? It is happening in an increasing number of families, which itself is a red flag, and it has led to the coining of the phrase sudden onset gender dysphoria. In other words, it's entirely likely that your daughter came to her decision not because she suffers from a mental condition, but because she's been deeply affected by pro-transgender social influences like peers and internet gurus. What is going on and what can be done to save our daughters from this really disturbing trend. We're going to talk about it today with Abigail Schreier. She is writer for the Wall Street Journal and author of the great book, Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze, Seducing Our Daughters. Abigail, it's so great to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. You bet. You first entered this world of transgender politics, I know, several years back because of the gender pronoun issue and the laws that came about in California and New York. Why did those laws alarm you at the time? What caught your attention back then that relates to what you're writing about in this book? So I'm, I'm a lawyer, and um, it, that they're just straightforwardly unconstitutional. In America, the government can't make you say anything. It can't even make you salute the flag. Yep. And our, our jurisprudence is really, really clear on this. Under the First Amendment, the government can't compel speech, and the government has tried to compel speech under laws in New York and, and California, my state, where they actually assign criminal penalties for failing to use the correct gender pronouns. So I wrote about that. It's fairly straightforward. And a reader wrote to me and she said her daughter had been caught up in this. And could I please take it on? She had written to many journalists and no one was interested. Yeah, exactly. Well, nobody wants to touch it with a 10 foot pole. And even if you have stories, (laughs) as you know, well, but I mean, even if you have stories of people who have reversed their sex change operations and now denounce everything they went through with gender dysphoria, they don't even get their stories told half the time. There's a big blackout factor. That's right. When she reached out to me, you know, I'm not an investigative journalist. I was an opinion journalist, and I I tried to find an investigative journalist who would take this up, and I wasn't able to. So after three months, I got back in touch with her, and I thought, all right, let let me reach out to all the parents you're telling me about who are going through this. And, and let me hear their stories. And I did. And, and what I found was, you know, in there's, it's based on a lot of research. I did almost 200 interviews. Um, and what I found was this is a peer contagion, meaning just like anorexia and bulimia and cutting, it spends with it's, it, it spreads within friend groups. Girls convince themselves, girls in genuine distress convince themselves that this is the cause and they spread it uh, to their friends. Yeah. Now let's talk a little bit about this because one of the things you mentioned is that the experience of girlhood is different in this generation maybe than it was for many of us in our own childhoods. What is different about this generation that would cause that sort of peer contagion? Sure. So there are a a number of things. 
First of all, the most important thing to know is that girls today spend a lot less time in person with each other and a lot more time online. The influences that matter most in their lives are, are not other girls in person. In fact, they don't get as nearly as much comfort from their friends or, or genuine, you know, deep friendship. What they get is direction and competition online. Mm-hmm. They have access to all these gurus that they follow and who influence them, and then they are constantly comparing and competing, you know, holding up their bodies against their friends, you know, doctored images online. So they feel a lot of distress. They are, they feel that they are failing as girls. They are failing as women because they're comparing themselves to an ideal they cannot measure up to. And it's causing them a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression. Well, this is interesting because all of us can say we, we went through the same sorts of things when we were adolescents. I don't measure up to Brooke Shields on the cover of Vogue or whatever it is. But we didn't resolve it by trying to change our sex. I mean, what, well, what one, is the deadly combination one, here? Right. So one thing to know is it's not Brooke Shields. It's actually the girl in your class. Her images have been doctored online, too. So you sit and you see see the girls in your own class and they look perfect because all of their issues have uh, all of their images have been face tuned. So even the girls in your class feel like you can't reach them. And the competition never ends because you hold the pictures in your pocket and they torment you all day long. And not just the pictures, the comments, people tearing apart their bodies online. You read about that. People tearing apart your body online, you read about that. It's, it really produces, in girls who are always prone to compare themselves, it produces a great amount of distress and anxiety. And now, in today's day and age, there's a solution. And that solution is you, don't, you might not be a girl at all. Maybe you're imperfectly feminine because you're really supposed to be a boy. Good grief. So so talk a little bit about how it works. If you have friends who are really moving you in that direction, are they getting it from the internet gurus first? Are they getting it from the pro-LGBT clubs at school? What is, in other words, connect the dots on how this gets to these girls. All of the above. So first of all, the thing to know that is that these transgender influences are online. They are everywhere. You don't even have to go hunting for them. They will. Many teenage sites will queue them up, and they are highly addictive, highly watchable. Um, they're very charismatic teenagers, and they promise you that the best thing that ever happened to them was a course of testosterone. Mm. Um, they are also getting these girls a ton of gender indoctrination, ideology indoctrination in the schools, starting in kindergarten. And I explored my own school system here in California, where it is extremely radical, extremely pervasive, and it starts in kindergarten. So these girls are getting confused in schools, and the educators are really happy to embrace and celebrate them as as a new gender. Wow. Uh, Okay? And even if they express distress and are taken to a therapist for any reason, therapists are now affirming and celebrating these identities. So wherever these girls look... They are told that if they just come out of as a boy, they will get popularity, they will get celebration, and they will get shield from all the criticism and, and, and derision that attaches to being a white girl today. It's crazy. And California, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm doing this from memory, but isn't it the case now in California, if you do go to any kind of therapist, that therapist, you're not allowed to tell somebody you, you may not be the other gender or you may not be gay or something along those lines. 
That's exactly right. In 18 states, we've adopted conversion therapy laws, which purport to eliminate, you know, gay conversion therapy. But what they actually do is eliminate that plus all gender identity therapy. And the problem with that was that was always the way we treated gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria was a, you know, psychological distress in your biological sex. It began in early childhood and it overwhelmingly afflicted boys. And the way we would treat it was therapists would examine the whole child and trying to figure out what was going on. Where did he get this idea that if he was a girl, he'd feel better? Okay. Now you're not even allowed to inquire. And all of a sudden, the predominant demographic in America out of nowhere is teenage girls with sudden gender dysphoria. They claim they have gender dysphoria, even though they have no childhood history of it. And on the basis of their self-diagnosis, they're getting hormones and surgeries. But whatever happened to just being a tomboy? Because statistically, most of these girls or boys who have any kind of gender conflict outgrow it anyway. Right. Well, we're not allowing that anymore. There's no such thing as a tomboy in school today. In fact, they are presented with a litany of gender options. Tomboy is not one of them. Gender nonconforming is. So they may decide that they are pansexual or, you know, they, they have a whole list of options they can choose from but, or, you know, non-binary. But tomboy is not among them. Yeah. Tomboy is just not an option anymore. How many girls are actually falling for this, this pure contagion pressure to switch genders ostensibly? We don't know exactly. And the reason we don't know is that clinics don't even require a a formal diagnosis in order to get hormones and surgeries. I can tell you a couple things. In 20, between 2016 and 2017, the number of gender gender surgeries on on biological females quadrupled. I can also tell you that a a decade ago, we had one gender clinic in the United States. Today, we have well over 50. And, and, and I can tell you that Planned Parenthood now gives out testosterone across the country on oh, a first man. visit. Oh, man. Without even a therapist note. No therapy. Uh, unbelievable. And you know what you're talking about in this book is what is so alarming. We don't yet know the long term effects on these girls. Uh, true for boys as well. But in particular, girls, when you are engaging in things like hormone treatments or body altering surgeries, uh, it's just terrifying to think what may be coming down the line. We'll take a short pause. We'll come back with Abigail Schreier. Her book is called Irreversible Damage. Stay with us on Janet Meffer today. Since Roe v. Wade, more than 60 million babies' lives have been taken through abortion, and there are millions of additional preborn babies whose lives are still at risk. But the Ministry of Preborn stands in the gap with young moms in crisis, helping them to choose life. When I saw my baby for the first time on an ultrasound, I just felt so shocked and so surprised. I was just so scared. After learning all my options, I chose life. It was important for me to make the right choice. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasound sounds in the United States. They're the direct competition to Planned Parenthood, helping moms to make the choice of life. And you can help. One ultrasound is just $28. Would you join with Preborn in the cause for life? To donate, call now 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
If you're looking for adventure, serving as a volunteer on the Mercy Ship is an adventure like no other. And you'll be serving on the largest non-governmental hospital ship in the world, providing free care to some of the world's poorest people. Whether it's performing a surgery, cleaning the deck, or transporting a patient to a recovery center, every day you'll be making a difference in the lives of struggling people. Begin your adventure today. Connect with us at mercyships.org. It's an adventure of a lifetime. Hi, this is Janet Mefford, and I'm really excited to tell you about our new campaign with Bible League International. We want to get 1,200 Bibles into the hands of Christians who have been praying for years for their own copies of God's Word in Asia. Each Bible only costs $5, or you can send seven Bibles for $35. You can call now at 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, 800-YES-WORD, or JanetMefford.com. Thank you so much. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to have with us Abigail Schreier. She is a writer for the Wall Street Journal and author of a really important book, Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze, Seducing Our Daughters. And focusing on this issue of pure contagion, that you have all of these girls suddenly saying they're transgender, when in fact, historically, the diagnoses of gender dysphoria have been very rare, haven't they? Abigail, what is the discrepancy in the numbers? Yeah, so before we were talking about 0.01%, so one one-hundredth of 1%, which meant probably nobody you knew growing up was transgender. Right. Today, 2% of high school students now identify as transgender. So you're talking about well over a million kids, and you're talking about... Uh, um, and, and they are overwhelmingly female. We've never hmm. seen this before. Hmm. That's crazy. Well, and, and on every side, they're getting it. They're not just getting the internet stars, you know, maybe it's RuPaul, maybe it's Jazz Jennings or somebody like that. You're getting the peer group influence. You're getting the curriculum influence, maybe in schools. You're getting politicians going along with it. But what happens to these girls once they declare, I'm transgender? Do most of them go through with hormone treatments? Do most of them seek any sort of body-altering surgeries? And what are some of the ramifications of these declarations? So it depends when when they start and how much influence the parent still has. So I interviewed one woman in my book who goes by Catherine Cave, and her daughter um, in seventh grade heard a school assembly in which a transgender student addressed the students, and after hearing that, she decided, oh... Um, I'm uncomfortable in my body. I've never felt perfectly female. That That's what I am, too. So she came home and announced it to her mom. Her mom tried to take it seriously, but not, not necessarily literally. But the girl um, was encouraged to make an announcement to her class. So her therapist, the girl was in therapy, and she was encouraged to make an announcement to her teacher, who changed her name and pronouns within the school, keeping it a secret from her parents. This <sighs> is standard across, in many school systems across the country. They keep it as a secret from the parents. And the therapist was pushing the mother to start the kid on hormones because she, she told the mother, this is the only way to keep your daughter from suicide. And that is a common line parents will get. Well, that's not true, though, right? Because we continue to see even people who have gone through you know, the whole shebang where you go through the surgery, they're still depressed. They're still committing suicide in many instances. Dr. Paul McHugh from Johns Hopkins, who put a, an end to the sex change operations out there and has been criticized for it, he pointed that out. That's why he wanted those operations to stop because they didn't actually solve the problem. 
Right. So what is true is that there is a high rate of depression and suicidality among trans-identified youth and, and trans-identified people. What has never been proved is for this population, number one, whether gender dysphoria is the cause of suicidality. Yeah. And two, what has never been proven is whether transition, medical or social transition, will, will eliminate that so suicidality. Yeah. So obviously, there's a lot we don't know. And in fact, we have some indication that it isn't necessarily the, trans, the gender dysphoria that's causing the depression. It may be the other way around, that depression is the real problem and anxiety is the real problem, not the gender dysphoria. Well, that would make sense because if you're talking about young girls who are increasing isolated and depressed and they're encountering all of these un, you know unattainable images of beautiful girls online that they feel they can't ever be you know there, there's got to be a factor of depression that would lead them to make such a leap in the first place that's right I mean the real story here is this is just one more manifestation of a mental health crisis that our teen girls are in. They happen today to be calling it gender dysphoria because that's what they see in the culture and that's the explanation they give to how bad they feel inside. But we know that rates of suicide are spiking like we've never before seen in teenage girls, even in tweens. Mm. And, and uh, this is also true for self-harm, you know, for cutting, for all kinds of, you know, self-directed bad behaviors, we know that they are in a lot of distress. They're calling it gender dysphoria, but really what they're in is a, a lot of pain. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, something else you mentioned, which I think is really disturbing, is the messages that these girls are getting. For example, you know, try out these constricting binders to, to you know, kind of figure out your new trans life. I mean, stuff like that, what kind of effect does it have on these young girls? It's very bad because it tends to solidify a young girl in her trans identity. I mean, even if that identity is ultimately not correct. I, I spoke to an, a woman just last week who called me. She very distressed. Her daughter was wearing a binder. And this is what happens. The mother told me the girl was 16 and she felt like she's so upset her daughter's wearing a binder now and, and going by this new name and pronouns, but she didn't feel like, and I said to her, why don't you take it away? And she said to me, oh, I couldn't. I don't want to get on her bad side. Oh. And I said to her, would you give her cigarettes? Because binders deform breast tissue. They can crack ribs. They can cause shortness of breath. They are really bad for these girls. But because this whole issue is cloaked in civil rights, a lot of parents have trouble opposing it. Yeah. Well, and it doesn't help when you see stories on the news of parents who are joyfully embracing their new daughter's male identity. I mean, then those parents have extra pressure, don't they, from the media to go along with it. That's exactly right. These parents are very good people. They are literally afraid to lose their jobs. They're afraid if they, if they are caught opposing this with their own daughters when they don't think it's right for them. They're afraid of being shamed on social media, mm -hmm. being fired from their jobs, losing all their friends, losing their reputations in their community as a big, being tarred a bigot. I mean, this is what happens when a parent stops and says, hold on, honey, you've never had gender dysphoria. This doesn't seem right. And you, your mental health is not improving by this. Good grief. Well, in doing all of the interviews that you did, what was the big takeaway for you among, I'm sure, many from the parents, from the parents' perspective that they secretly, I don't want to go along with this. Give me some tips on how to, to handle this. Is that basically what you found? 
Yeah, so a few things. Number one, you have to get your kids off social media. Whatever you can do, it depends. It's easier if they're younger, but if you can keep them off social media, it's the thing to do. We know social media causes a giant spike in anxiety, depression, and self-harm. It's just not, (laughs) it's just not worth the risk. Um, Number two, oppose gender ideology in the schools. Unfortunately, parents have accepted the school's line, which is that this is the only way to prevent bullying of transgender students. That's simply untrue. A school can oppose bullying of all students for any reason without indoctrinating an entire student body in gender ideology. And the third thing I would just say is parents need to just remember that they're the parents for a reason (laughs) and their daughters may be upset with this, but they need to stand up for what they think is right for their daughter. If the daughter seems to be suffering and having mental health problems and is not going down a good path, they need to they need to oppose it. That's great. And, and given that you you know your expertise in the law as well as what you're writing about in the book, don't you see or do you see down the line lawsuits are coming? I mean, really, when you have all of this stuff, they're they're little guinea pigs in a way. Let's give them hormones. Let's do surgeries. Let's see how it all turns out. But in many cases, isn't it possible that these girls will turn on their parents in coming years and say and say to them, "You should have stopped me, mom." That's exactly right. And you know what? I hope I hope there are lawsuits because the medical, unfortunately, medical professional organizations have almost all adopted affirmative care. They have really dropped their obligations to behave like doctors and scientists and instead become cheerleaders. Yeah. And, and frankly, you know, I, I certainly do hope a lot of these cheerleaders are one day held accountable. Do you find when you're looking, you know, doing all of your research on this book in particular, do you find there are a lot of lies that are put forward in order to advance this agenda? In other words, are there things that you would point out to people that if you're hearing this, that's not actually true about this whole transgender movement and it's something you need to communicate to your kids? There are so many lies about this, and there—I mean, it, there are so many. One is the risks of testosterone. We have never put a population of girls on ten to forty times the normal dose of testosterone permanently for decades. We've never seen so they don't know. We know that it elevates all kind of cardiac risks and it, infertility, but the truth is, the long-term risks. We don't know. There are tons of risks of puberty blockers and the long-term risk. We don't know. They lie about the fact that you often hear, oh, this is a neutral intervention. Well, there's already indication that not only do we know that if they go from puberty blockers to testosterone, they will be infertile, but they may have permanent sexual dysfunction as well. Mm. There's a lot we don't know. And, and, and one of the biggest lies is just doctors pretending we know more than we do. Yeah. What do you make of the fact that so many politicians are just going along with this entire movement with barely any pushback? I mean, when we're talking about potential for long-term harmful effects on these girls, there should be, shouldn't there, more politicians and more you know, intelligent people figuring this out and saying, hey, wait a minute, what Why aren't there more voices standing up against all this? That's right. I mean, the activists have been very successful in claiming that their rights, you know, their rights as adults, Trump, the, the, the ability to look into a mental health issue facing teenage girls. Yeah. You can extend as many LGBTQ rights as you want throughout the society, but that doesn't mean we can't examine a mental health issue facing teenage girls with objectivity and, and you know, integrity. And unfortunately, we have failed to do that. 
That's too bad. Well, and and movements that, in fact, are very political in nature, they've also, I know, put pressure on groups like the APA and trying to take, you know, transgenderism in in various word forms out of the diagnostic manual, things like that, in order to make it seem normal. It seems that's a big part of the problem. I mean, think about this. Gender surgery clinics, so surgical clinics that perform gender operations, now refer to it as gender-affirming surgeries. That's backwards. (laughs) Well, it makes them sound like yoga instructors. They're taking themselves out of the realm of science and into the realm of affirmation. Affirmation was never a surgeon's job. A surgeon was there to to heal and cure. And it's really about time they got back to that. Well, I I totally agree with you. And I think you're right. Long term, if we can get some lawsuits filed and you don't want any filed for the sake of the girls, you just don't want it to happen in the first place. But I think it's so important for people to know what's been going on. Just a fantastic book. It's called Irreversible Damage by our guest, Abigail Schreier. Abigail, thank you for writing this, and it was so great to have you. Thank you again. Thank you. All right. You take care. God bless. We'll be back on Janet Met for today. This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Well, Israeli Prime Minister Ben Benjamin Netanyahu recently affirmed his commitment to President Trump's Mideast peace plan, but he didn't expound on Israel's plans to annex up to 30 percent of the West Bank. Now, the U.N., the EU and Arab countries all have claimed that Israel's annexation would violate international law and, according to reports, undermine the already diminished prospects of establishing a viable independent Palestinian state alongside Israel. But as my next guest points out, that land belongs to Israel. And in fact, multiple polls show that both Israelis and even American Jews support applying Israel's sovereignty to Judea, Samaria, and the Jordan Valley. We're going to talk about it now with Morton Klein, president of the Zionist Organization of America, who recently co-authored a Jerusalem Post piece on the subject. Mort, it's great to have you with us. Thank you for being here. Well, it's great to be with you and your very special audience. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, absolutely. Explain for people why this annexation <laughs> plan of Judea, Samaria, and the Jordan Valley is so important for Israel to do. Well, first of all, we should never use the word annexation because the annexation means taking over someone else's sovereign land. That's the definition. Yes, This true. was never anyone else's land. Uh, this, there was never a Palestinian Arab state there. Uh, uh, so Israel is, is applying sovereignty over land which it has had rights over for thousands of years. I might add it for your audience. We should all remember that this is called the promised land. Yes. And we should ask the question, who promised it and to whom did he promise it? It's God promised it to the Jewish people. That's why it's called the promised land. It wasn't promised to the Arab people or the British people or the French people. Very true. <laughs> so th- this is really a centrally long injustice to the Jewish people <laughs> that they have not applied sovereignty to this area because legally uh, we have the San Remo resolution. Your audience won't know what that is. In 1920, the League of Nations covenant, the British mandate, and the UN Charter in 1945, all of which say under international law, this is Jewish land. 
And in fact, of, of the entire uh, area of Palestine, 80% of it was given away to Jordan in 1922, finalized in 1946. So what's left of Palestine, which is the original British mandate, is only 20% of Palestine. And Israel now is talking about sovereignty over, over 30% of the rest of Palestine. Uh, uh, and also, this is important for security reasons. Israel can protect itself by itself if it has these defensible borders. If they uh, declare sovereignty in these borders, uh, uh, this will be wide enough that Israel can defend themselves without help from anyone in the world. A thousand IDF officers have said Israel needs this land for security. It will secure Israel for, five, five, for decades. Also, people don't realize 500,000 Jews live there now. Yep. And they need to have a normal life under Israeli law, not under Ottoman law or military law, which is what they live under now. These half a million Jews are not going anywhere. No matter what deal is ever made, they cannot and will not be uprooted. And, of course, there's Jewish history, which is really biblical history. Jews are from Judea. This is the area of Judea and Samaria. Arabs are from Arabia. There was never a Palestinian state or a king and queen that was a Palestinian Arab. Mark Twain, the famous author, wrote in in his essay, Innocence Abroad, this land was totally empty when he went there in the late 1800s. The first Jews, Abraham and Sarah, lived in Judea and Samaria. The Jewish King David was anointed and ruled in Judea and Samaria. The Jewish prophet Jacob slept and dreamt in Judea and Samaria. The Jewish prophet Joseph uh, is from there. The Jewish Maccabees, which uh, the, the Hanukkah celebration is all about, they uh, lived and their base was in Judea and Samaria. There were Jewish kingdoms there for hundreds, even thousands of years. <laughs> and also, under Israeli law, all religious sites, including Christian sites, will be protected. When the Muslims and the Arabs have taken over areas, they destroy Jewish sites, they destroy Christian sites. This will ensure that those sites will remain safe and secure for Christians and Muslims and Jews to come and visit. Absolutely. By the way, you mentioned mentioned the four uh, Arab countries, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, and UAE, uh, publicly saying they're concerned about this. I can tell you by speaking to major officials in those countries, they will publicly complain, but they'll do nothing. It is okay with them for Israel to have uh, declared sovereignty over this area. And, of course, European countries are claiming that they'll uh, have sanctions in Israel and relations. They need Israel's world-class high tech. They need Israel's intelligence to protect them from domestic terrorism. This is all talk. They will not do anything uh, consequential if Israel does this. By the way, the same comments were made by Arabs and European states when Israel declared sovereignty over the Golan Heights and not a thing happened. Uh, the same with Jordan, with the Jerusalem. When Israel declared that all of Jerusalem is their capital, they were, uh, the, the, the pundits claimed there'll be terrorism and rioting. None of that happened. The world has accepted it. Yep. Um, so uh, th- there's so many reasons why Israel should do this and must do this. And uh, there's not a negative basis here. It's all positive. And also maybe one final point I might add. Israel has not declared sovereignty over this for the last 27 years since the Oslo Accords were signed in 1993. No sovereignty. And yet, there's been no peace for these last 27 years. Right. In fact, there's been no peace for the last 72 years, even though Israel has had not had sovereignty over these areas. Because the issue is not sovereignty. The issue is not land. The issue is the Palestinian Arabs want Israel destroyed. Yes. They won't accept Israel within any boundaries. They were offered a state in 2000, 2001. 2008. They turned it down every time they could have had a state. 
because it meant accepting Israel as a Jewish state. They won't do that. So sovereignty has nothing to do with peace. And that's an important thing for your uh, audience and all of us to to realize. You're right. You're totally right. That's a really, really great point. What do you make, Mm -hmm. though? Here you've done this great article here talking about the fact that Israelis support sovereignty. Mm -hmm. The American Jews in large numbers support sovereignty. Yet you have these left wingers here in the United States, for example, talking about, oh, this is terrible. You know, bad mouthing Israel, saying Israel has no right to do this. And this is, you know, all the rhetoric that we've been hearing coming out of the left. Can you address that a little bit and and you know, educate people a little bit on how the left has misled people about Israel? Well, it's true. 189 Democrats have signed a letter urging Israel not to do this. <laughs> um, even Jewish leftists uh, like Dennis Ross and Robert Satloff and Aaron David Miller has urged Israel not to do this. These are well-known in the Jewish world at think tanks. I will say that all the people who have been urging Israel not to do this, are the same people that said uh, Oslo will bring us peace, this is a great idea. The Gaza withdrawal, Israel withdrew from all of Gaza, they said this will bring us peace. They've been wrong about everything with with respect to Israel. So I would say, listening to these leftists, listening to these Jewish leftists as well, is like going to a lawyer who has never won a case. They've been wrong every single time, and they're wrong again right now. Yeah, it's important for people to understand. I'm curious, this peace plan came out in January, as people might remember, but the U.S. hasn't yet given approval yet on this plan. Where does this all stand, and what do you make of it? No, no, the, the President Trump and his people uh, fully support uh, the Trump uh, peace plan, uh, which in which Israel would uh, gain sovereignty over 30% of Judea and Samaria. The Arabs would have the other 70%. And this plan says there'll be no state, however, for the Palestinians until (laughs) it's in the plan. It has to be demilitarized, no major arms. They have to fight terrorism and arrest terrorists and put them in prison. They have to have a constitution. They have to have uniform and fair laws. They have to enforce those laws. They have to have contracts, real courts, a free press, free elections. It's been a dictatorship. (laughs) There hasn't been an election there in almost 20 years. It's a dictatorship. This requires free elections, freedom of religion, human rights, freedoms, uh, and a uh, transparent, independent, credit-worthy financial institutions. They have to stop their schools and textbooks, which promote hatred. They have to rescind. This is all in the plan. The names of schools, streets, and sports teams. 80 schools, streets, and sports teams the Palestinian Authority has named after Jew-killing and American-killing terrorists. Mm -hmm. All of these things have to happen before America will support a state. In addition, they have to stop paying Arabs to murder Jews and Americans. Can you believe what I just told you? The Palestinian Authority spends $400 million a year paying the killers of Jews or Americans, and if they go to prison, they pay the families a pension for life, a pension which is five times the average salary of an average Palestinian. It is very lucrative to murder Jews and Americans for the Palestinian Authority. It is Nazi-like, the thought they pay money to murder Jews and Americans. It's terrible. Well, Morton Klein, president of the Zionist Organization of America, thank you so much for the update. Really appreciate your being with us. Thank you. And ZOA.org, you can learn all about this uh, by yourself. Excellent. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mort. Appreciate it. We'll be right back.
This is Janet Mefford, and we're partnering with Bible League International on Fan the Flame Bibles for Asia. Our shared goal is to send 1,200 Bibles from the Janet Mefford listening family to our brothers and sisters in Christ in Asia. In this region of the world, Bibles are scarce for many reasons, including the remoteness of where people live. In the Philippines, church planters and evangelists trained by using resources from Bible League International travel many hours by car, boat, and by foot to lead Bible studies in remote places of the country. Let's send them the Bibles they need in order to share Christ and to see lives transformed for His glory. You can join other Janet Mefford listeners by sending a Bible for $5 or $15 for $75. Just call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Just look for Fan the Flame, Bibles for Asia. And God bless you for caring. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. You know, I have come up with a new phrase. It's not really that great. It just kind of popped into my head one day, and I started referring to garbage journalism. Just garbage journalism. That was the first thing that came into my head, because every single day when I'm going through the news, I read stories which are embarrassing. And I go back to my days in the newsroom when I was on the editor desk, and I always think to myself, Reporter, you wouldn't have gotten past me in a million years with this piece of garbage because it's horrible in terms of what journalism ought to be. And I go through this daily. Every single day I go through this because the state of reporting is so horrible. It used to be that we would just say it's liberal. There's liberal bias like Bernie Goldberg wrote about years ago. Yeah, we know about the leftist bias. Yes, we know about the political voting makeup of most journalists. But there were still people within the realm of journalism, at least when I was doing it full time, who really did want to get the facts out there and really did want to tell the whole story and tell side A and tell side B and then try to be fair. That's so gone. And then you have the problem of conservative journalism, not that that's a problem in and of itself, but you have people who are trying to do journalism and not be part of this cabal of leftist journalists who aren't trained journalists. So they don't know how to do it well either. And I just I go out of my mind some days. I saw a story, for example, a couple of days ago. You might have heard about this. This this is something I could rant and rave about for a long, long time. But there was a story, for example, about a young girl who went to a church event and there were about 100 kids at this church event and she died and she died of covid. So what do they say? Churches are rampant with spreading COVID-19. 
Well, I look at that and I say, well, you can claim that, but how in the world do you know that? You dig into the story a little bit. It turns out the girl had a really long history of serious health problems. It turns out that her mom, who apparently was a nurse, gave her azithromycin, an antibiotic, the day of the church event. And I'm thinking to myself, why would you give somebody an antibiotic the day of the church event? She wouldn't have contracted COVID-19 the day she went enough for mom to give her an antibiotic. So what's that all about? Well, they never explain it. They never say that the other 99 kids came down with COVID-19. So there are all kinds of holes in these stories. But then the New York Times comes out with a piece talking about churches are linked to, you know, five zillion COVID-19 cases. I'm exaggerating on purpose. And then you say, well, what is your source for knowing this definitively? How do you know where people are contracting COVID-19? Last I checked, the virus is invisible. How would you know or prove where they contracted it? Uh, the little girl, by the way, contracted COVID-19 something like two days after the church events. I thought the incubation period for COVID-19 was much longer than that. So I look at this New York Times story on churches spreading COVID. Oh, it's horrible. Churches are the worst places to get COVID. And it says, according to the New York Times database, we have X number of cases linked to churches. Well, New York Times, how many cases are linked to Walmart? How many cases are linked to grocery stores? How many cases are linked to rioters and leftist protesters in the streets in New York? Because Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, certainly wants to make sure that all churches and synagogues stay permanently closed, probably. But he's fine with protests. He said that just recently. When, when he was doing an interview, protests are fine. So you begin to get a little skeptical, don't you? Then I come across this story. You might have heard about this tragic story out of Indianapolis. A young mom, 24 years old, by the name of Jessica Doty Whitaker, was shot dead in front of her fiance and a couple of other friends. They still have not found out who did it or made any arrests so far. But listen to the garbage journalism report on this because the twist in this story is she said all lives matter when she was having an argument with some supporters of Black Lives Matter, and then she ends up dead. Listen to how Fox 59 reported the story. This is cut one. According to the victim's family, the shooting here on the canal started with an argument over race. Eventually, the two sides separated and walked away from each other until witnesses claim the killer opened fire from a nearby bridge and then ran away. An argument over Black Lives Matter and language led to a confrontation and eventually gunfire early Sunday morning. It was squashed. They went up the hill left and uh, thought they left, but... They were just sitting on St. Clair Street and waiting for us to come under the bridge. And that's when she's got shot. Jose admits he returned fire but didn't hit anyone and says his fiance, Jessica Doty Whitaker, leaves behind a little boy. I think she shouldn't have lost her life. She's got a three-year-old son. She loves dearly. Explaining to Jessica's son that he'll never see his mom again has been the hardest part for the family. It's hard to tell him his mom's in heaven. When you want to talk to mom, you got to look up and say, I love you, mom. Just one week earlier, two people were shot on the same part of the canal. During one of those shootings, a 14-year-old identified as Curtis White Jr. died during an attempted armed robbery. Our message is that the canal is still a safe place to go. Oh, yeah. Get me down to that canal right away. You've only had a couple of murders lately. Actually, there have been three, according to the Daily Mail, three in recent week, in the last week. Three shootings. What, what are you talking about? All right, that's standard PR for the police. We don't want people to stop going to the canal. It's perfectly safe. Show up with your family. Everything's fine. 
Did you hear, though, what they said when they were reporting on this shooting? They never described the killers, did they? Or the potential killer who might have been part of the group. Don't you want to describe the suspects or potential suspects so if people come across these people, they might be able to report them to police? Nothing. Nothing. But they link the other death, who was of a young black boy, to this death. So what's going on there? The second death is tragic and horrible. But what does that have to do with the main story, which is about Jessica Doty Whitaker being gunned down because she said all lives matter? Don't you want to know who to look for? Maybe it was a group of five white people. Maybe it was a group of five Chinese people. Maybe it was a group of five black people. We don't know. But generally speaking, if you're putting out information about a deadly crime, you usually tell the people in the listening audience or the viewing audience what they look like or a police sketch or some kind of information so people can help catch the killer. And there's nothing. Now listen to cut two. The IMPD partners with state police, the Parks Department, and the Department of Metropolitan Development to patrol different areas along the canal. Police have added extra security cameras and will increase patrols, especially during the overnight hours. Just recently, the DMD has, is now hiring two off-duty or overtime officers to work the canal during those times nightly. A combination of all those efforts we're hoping is going to uh, make a difference and it can't help to. For their part, Jessica's family simply wants her killer caught. We're going through a lot, a lot. Three-year-old boy, he don't even understand really. I just want justice for Jessica and her son and her family. Finally, police have not released any information on possible suspects, but anyone with information on the case can still contact Crime Stoppers. All right, the police have not released information on the suspects. That's fine, but you have an eyewitness in front of you. Why don't you ask him? Who are these people? You know, the bigger story here is that the family ends up agreeing, the father of this poor girl on Facebook got in line with the idea of declaring Black Lives Matter a terrorist organization. Somebody mentioned it to him on Facebook and he said, I totally agree. Isn't the bigger story the Black Lives Matter movement and how because of this movement, people are getting killed, not just white people, but black people as well. And the black people who so far have been killed because of these rioters in the streets, they're just forgotten. They're not even reported on in mainstream media in many respects. Nobody is connecting the dots because nobody wants to stand up and say what is right in front of us. And that is this instigated race war, which is occurring. Now, I don't know exactly who murdered Jessica Doty, and, and I hope they catch whoever it is of whatever stripe or color the person is. Doesn't matter. But whoever these people were, we know they were Black Lives Matter supporters. And we have a lot of people in the streets supporting Black Lives Matter as an organization who are white. Doesn't matter. The issue is the organization behind it is inspiring murders now. Simply because somebody says all lives matter, all lives do matter. And by the way, that's a bigger category. And Black Lives Matter, small b, small l, small small m, still fits within that bigger category. It's not an offensive thing to say all lives matter. Unless you're an activist who's going along with this communist inspired ideology that is getting people killed. And when you have this kind of journalism or lack thereof, the people miss out. It's not just the case that we have leftist propaganda 
on steroids in the media nowadays because we do. It's gotten so bad. It's not even funny. But they are deliberately withholding truth. They are deliberately not connecting dots. Look at some of these churches that have been set on fire. I was commenting on that just recently. We have a church in California that was burned to the ground. You have a church in Florida. The guy came in and lit it on fire. You have more... You start connecting the dots and you say, hey, maybe there's a bigger story here, except it's a bigger story that no mainstream journalist will touch with a 10-foot pole. What if you tried to spread the message that Christianity was under attack? Do you think they would ever go for that story? Not at all. But we'll keep tabs on it for you because I don't believe in garbage journalism. I believe in the truth. This hour, Janet Meffer today has been brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to needy Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible. Call now 800 Yes Word. That's 800 Yes Word. 800 Yes Word. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMeffer.com. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.